Good morning. I wanted to introduce to you Jorge and Stefane. They are interning. Well, actually, Jorge is interning with us, and he'll be here. They will be here the next three months from the Dominican. I'm going to let them talk just briefly. Hi, my name is Jorge. This is my wife, Stephanie. We are from La Romana, Dominican Republic. We work with Pastor Isidro at the church. We are glad and grateful to be here with us for this time. We know that it will be a great time. Thank you for receiving us. Jorge was worried that uh, maybe his English was not good enough, so I assured him that our Spanish is not good enough. (laughs) I think his English is amazing, personally, and we are just so thrilled to have them for the next three months. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Luke 22. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 20. I know last week I said, uh, we're starting in 1 Thessalonians. I was off one week. Next week, we're starting in 1 Thessalonians. Let's ask God to guide our time. Lord, we thank you that we can gather with such freedom. We thank you for a nation that through the shed blood of many men and women, our freedom was bought. And that we could gather together without fear of reprisal to worship you, the one true triune God. Father, as we celebrate our independence this week, May we not rush through the festivities as though it is merely a holiday, but may we remember the freedoms and the great costs of the freedom that we enjoy, and may we worship you and praise you for it. And for we who know your Son as Savior, we thank you for the greatest freedom, freedom from the bondage of sin that leads to eternal death and freedom in Christ with a hope and assurance that when you call us from this earth, we will go to be with you forever in heaven. And Father, as we talk a little bit about communion, we pray that you would guide our time. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Today, as you and I talk a little bit about communion, I thought I would share a few places that I've been privileged to enjoy communion in. A number of years ago, I was in Kazakhstan, which was a former satellite of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. It's now an independent Asian nation. And I was there to train pastors and I had the privilege of preaching in perhaps the largest evangelical church in Kazakhstan at the time. And the pastor told me not to worry about the time. You don't say that to a fellow pastor. It's always a bad idea. But he really meant it. 
And so he told me that my first stint that, some, that Sunday was two hours. He said, they don't expect to get up for the first two hours. And so I preached for two hours thinking, man, that was a long time. Now I'm done. And the pastor of the church got up and said, please go to the restroom because Pastor Jeff is going to preach his next two-hour segment in five minutes. <laughs> what does the Bible say? Be ready in season and out of season. I don't know that I had two two-hour messages, but... Uh, Hey, they gave me the microphone and away I went. After we were done with those four hours, I mean, those people are saints, four hours of me. Then we held a potluck supper, and then we went to a public pool in this Muslim-dominated country, and I had the privilege of baptizing a number of new believers. And then we shared communion. And you can imagine my shock in communion after the bread when I took the cup and I drank it and discovered that they use 100 proof vodka for <laughs> communion. I suppose after four hours of my preaching, they needed to pick me up. And uh, that was what we had. But it was so meaningful with these brothers and sisters to celebrate what Jesus Christ had done, his death, burial, and resurrection. I remember another communion service. Fourteen of us, fathers and sons, went to Greece on a shoestring budget. Those guys are never going to let me pick the hotels. What did they expect for nine bucks a night? The Ritz? So the hotels weren't the greatest, and the things that were crawling on the ground weren't all that exciting, but I remember being in ancient Corinth, and I remember we were at the Bema, which is a word for judgment. It's where the governor presides over the court, and we were at the Bema, and there was a whipping stone. You can see it right there. It's a whipping stone just like they have at the Lithostratos in Jerusalem, it's that kind of stone that Jesus was tied to by a leather thong, his back bent over. It's that kind of stone that made it impossible for Jesus to escape the scorpion whip with soldiers on either side bringing the whip down on Jesus. And here we were celebrating and commemorating what Christ had done as we looked at that stone, and it was so meaningful to remember the incredible sacrifice Christ paid on behalf of sinners, on behalf of us. That's the kind of love of our incredible Savior. One other place. I've been there a lot of times. It's the garden tomb in Jerusalem. It's not actually the burial site of Christ. That would be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But there is some first century and second century tombstones. There used to be a rolling stone there. And we always celebrate communion in the garden tomb. It's a serene place. It's, it's filled with gardens. It's beautiful. It's owned by the Anglican church, by the Brits. And when you come with a group, whether large or small, they fix communion for us. 
And you have the choice between grape juice and wine. I always choose grape juice. And I was there with three friends, again, on a shoestring budget. They're not going to let me pick the hostels, that group either. But we were there and we videotaped the service of communion, just the four of us. And the intent was to show it here in church the next time we had communion. Well, I asked for grape juice, and you can imagine my surprise as a teetotaler when it wasn't grape juice, it was wine. And I don't know what overcame me. I was so surprised, I said to the camera, forgetting that the camera was going, wow, that's good Jerusalem wine. I have no idea what's good or bad Jerusalem wine. But you can be sure my four friends, those three former friends, made sure we showed that in the sanctuary the next week, those former friends of mine, two of which are in here today. I haven't forgiven them yet. Well, in truth, a location might add ambiance to communion, but every time we celebrate communion, it ought to be both a solemn celebration Both words true, solemn. We focus on what Jesus has done. And we celebrate our freedom in Christ. And we celebrate, if we know Jesus, that we have passed from eternal death into eternal life. That we have been bought with a price. And we have a future and a hope and eternity not made with hands in heaven when our days here on earth are over. I want to pick up and read from Luke 22, 14 to 20. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. I want us to picture the scene. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, a word that means to be pressed. Gethsemane has olive presses, and you would press the olive and squeeze out the juice. And how poetic for what is about to happen to Christ. He's about to be squeezed out. His body is to be brutalized. His blood is to be shed. And as I read the Gospels, I believe that Jesus is exposed to the whip not once, but twice. It's possible to read the Gospels as saying he was beaten once, or to read it as I do, to see that he was beaten twice. And we know that if the Jews had beaten him, that it would be limited to 39 lashes. That was Jewish law. But the Jews did not beat the Christ. It was the Romans. And they were limited by nothing but their women's strength. And if Jesus endured two scourges, 
by the scorpion whip, leather embedded with glass and shards of pottery and pieces of metal. It is possible that upon his back, that stripe came upwards of a hundred times across his back, down his legs, all the way to the bottom of his foot. We can imagine that his body is pulp. We can imagine that he's traumatized and he's in shock and there's been a great loss of blood. That's what our Savior did for us. But beyond that, so far beyond that, God who became man, fully God, fully man. We call it the hypostatic union, the union of God and man completely. Then Jesus, who never sinned, went to the cross and took our sin upon himself. For the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to die. Someone needs to pay the penalty of sin. And the sinless one who has never sinned, never will sin, is covered with our sin, so that Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, referring to the Father, made him, referring to the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin, to be covered with sin, that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And we remember that year-long march from the Galilee down to Jerusalem, in which Jesus visited several dozen cities, did many miracles, offered many teachings. That year-long march, Jesus over and over and over again, he told the disciples of what was coming. They didn't catch it, but Jesus knew. He knew what he was about to suffer. He knew what he was about to go through. He saw you and he marched to Jerusalem. And he knew he would be covered with sin, our sin. But before he went to the cross, Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover supper with his disciples. So he sent one to get an upper room and they began to enjoy not only the Passover, but it was mingled with what we call the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord's Supper goes with many names. We call it the Last Supper, We call it the Eucharist, Eucharisteo. That is actually the word, give thanks. It's the word actually in our text. Do you know where the word Eucharist comes from? It comes from this text. It comes from Luke 22. And when they had given thanks, that's the word Eucharist. And as we partake of the elements, whatever name we give, we remember that Christ paid the penalty. Now, there are many aspects of the Lord's Supper that are preferential. These are issues that should never divide us. Whether we use crackers or wafers or matzo toast or a common cup or a common loaf, that should never divide us. Whether we use grape juice or wine or in Kazakhstan, 100 proof vodka, perhaps that shouldn't divide us. Some of us have preferences. I'm not going for a common cup. I'm sorry. I just don't trust all of you. But I want the individual cups. But those are preferences. They're not dividing issues. Unfortunately, however, there are some aspects of the Lord's Supper that are beyond preferential. 
They're theological. They're biblical. And I want to talk about some of these aspects, hopefully, in a very gracious way so that we can understand as a congregation what we think the Bible does say and what it does not. There's two words, ordinance and sacrament. Some use these words interchangeably, but they are not interchangeable words. They should not be used interchangeably. They're theologically charged words. We use the word ordinance. We believe that the Bible gives us two ordinances from the word ordained. These are things that Jesus initiated. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And when we think of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're very clear that they follow salvation, that they are not salvific in and of themselves, that having received by faith Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, then a one-time act, we are baptized in solidarity in Christ. Like Jesus who went down to the grave, we go down and we arise. It's symbolic of the old nature dying, and we are new creatures in Christ. Baptism follows salvation. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1, 14 to 17, where he makes it clear that baptism is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Read the verses for yourself, 1 Corinthians 1, 14 to 17. The gospel, the euangelion, the good news is salvation by faith in Christ alone. And having received the gospel, then we are baptized. And having received the gospel, then we commemorate what Jesus did through the Lord's Supper on an interval here once a month. We remember the bread representing the bruised body of Christ and the juice representing the shed blood of Christ. That's what we mean by ordinance. Then there's the word sacrament. It's not a word we would use. But we have to be very careful with the word because all sacramental Christians don't believe the same thing. There's sacrament with a small s, and that really shouldn't concern us. And there's sacrament with the large s, and we ought to be quite concerned over it. Sacramental with a small s, they're reformational Christians. They adamantly believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. They, like all of us, would cite Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, even works like baptism or communion, not of works so none of us can boast. So what makes them sacramental? Just a small thing. They believe that when you do an act in obedience to the Lord, God's good grace, not saving grace, God's good grace falls on you. Well, isn't that true in every area of life? So I suppose in some ways, though I wouldn't use the term, I suppose in some ways, most of us, if not all of us, could use the small s sacramental. Not really a concern. It shouldn't divide Christians. But large s sacramentalism, although coming from people who are very, very earnest, very sincere, 
that ought to concern us. Large S sacramental people believe that baptism is a means of salvation and communion is a means by which we keep the salvation that we achieved at one point. Well, first, we don't achieve salvation, do we? It's a free gift from God as we believe in what Christ has done for us. And there's nothing in Scripture that would suggest a sacramental aspect. Think of Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Salvation is by believing in Christ and what he did on the cross for us. His finished, his sufficient atonement, his sufficient payment for our sin. So at Highland, we believe in two ordinances, two practices ordained by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which follow salvation and should never be seen as a means of salvation or even a means to keep the salvation that God has graciously given us. So when Jesus celebrates communion, he does it on Passover. Interestingly enough, Passover is the first feast. You know that there were originally seven Jewish feasts. There was Passover and there was first fruits and there was unleavened bread and there was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement and the feast of trumpets and the feast of booze and tabernacles. And I forgot one somewhere else in there. And then they added a few more, the feast of Ab or the ninth of Ab, which commemorates the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then they added Purim, a Hebrew word that means lots. That's the time when Haman cast the lots to determine the day when all the Jews would be annihilated. But thankfully, God raised up Esther, a woman who was used by God to save her people. So they celebrate that. And then we also know very famously the celebration of lights, Hanukkah, which celebrates the temple, the rededication of the temple, after the Maccabees took on the Greek or Hellenistic or Seleucid Empire. Well, the very first of the feasts is Passover. And Jesus celebrates the Passover and he intermingles the Passover with communion. We remember Passover, don't we? It's out of Exodus 12 and following. It's a time period when the Jews left their land and came to the land of Goshen outside Egypt. They only numbered 70. And they were uh, welcomed with open arms by the Egyptians. But the Jews began to procreate. And over the next 430 years, they went from uh, well-welcomed guests to enslavement. And the enslavement became brutal. And the cries of the people came up to the Lord. And the Lord raised up a man. His name was Moses. And along with Moses, we have his brother Aaron. And you remember that God used them to unleash a number of miracles, a number of plagues. Moses would go to Pharaoh and he'd say, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say no, and another plague would come. 
And this went on, and this went on, and this went on. And finally, God gave the last plague or the last curse. It's the angel of death. And you remember all the Jews were told to sacrifice a yearling, a goat or a lamb, and to take the blood and use a hyssop branch and to put it on the sides and the the top of the doorpost so that when the angel of death passes by, he sees the blood as a temporary payment, a temporary atonement for sin. He passes by and those houses that don't have the blood will suffer the loss of their firstborn. And you remember in the next morn, the agony of the Egyptians who had lost many of their, their children, their firstborn. And finally, Pharaoh said, out of here, go! And he forces the Jews to leave. And then a few hours pass and he comes to a census from his point of view. And he says, we have several million slaves. They've built wonderful things. We need those slaves. And so he sends his army after them. And you remember that the Jews have their backs, the, the Egyptians coming and their backs to a water. The Hebrew word or phrase is yansuf literally means sea of reeds. Many have interpreted that to be the Red Sea. Perhaps that's correct, but that's not exactly the designation given to it. It may be that Yansuf and the Sea of Reeds are the same. I don't know, but it means Sea of Reeds. And so the Jews are hopeless. And you remember God does another miracle and he separates the water, and they walk on dry land, and they get to the other side, and the water crashes down on the Egyptians, and they are lost. And that's the celebration of Passover. And Jesus, when he's in the upper room, he intermingles that celebration with himself, and he begins to call himself the Paschal or the Passover Lamb which is then picked up by the New Testament and even Old Testament writers writing in prophetic fashion because Jesus is the sacrifice. His blood is shed, not as a temporary atonement, but the final atonement. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, had been sacrificed. John writes in Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Isaiah writing 700 years before the events prophetically says this in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. During the first communion, Again on Passover, Jesus identified himself as the Paschal Lamb. He is the Lamb that is sacrificed, but not over and over again. He is sacrificed once and for all. And that's why Jesus said of the cracker, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Take and drink in remembrance of me. And yet, and yet those two phrases, those powerful phrases have caused division in the church since the 13th century onward. 
I think of the Fourth Lateran Council. There have been 21 major councils. The Fourth Lateran Council is in 1215. So this isn't Catholic. This isn't Protestant. There isn't a division until 300 years later, October 31, 1517. But out of that council, we have some medieval theologians, not the best, by the way, pounding on the pulpit as they cried out, hoc est corpus myum, Latin. This is my body. And demanding for the very first time that that cracker be the literal body of Christ and the juice be the literal blood of Christ. We have 1,200 years of church history of which nobody has demanded that you take those words woodenly. And suddenly we have medieval theologians demanding to take it literally. Did the first 1,200 years get it wrong? But even then, most of the church is divided. It will not be into the Council of Twent in 1545 to 1563, the council that condemns all Protestants, a condemnation, by the way, that has never been lifted, in which formally this idea of transubstantiation, trans change, substance, the substance change, the cracker literally becomes the body, the juice literally becomes the blood. It is not until the 16th century that that is codified by any part of the church. I'm just going to read two phrases to you out of that council so you can get a feel for it. If anyone denies that the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, substantially, fully contained in the sacrament, but instead says that Christ is present in the sacrament only as a sign or figure, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. That's most Protestants. The second one I'll read condemns the rest of Protestants, specifically Lutherans. If anyone says that Christ present in the Eucharist is only spiritually eaten and not sacramentally and really as well, let him be anathema, condemned. So we have 1,500 years where the church has never understood that we are to take the words literally, woodenly, and suddenly we are told that we ought. Now, someone may say, well, Jesus did say, this is my body, this is my blood. Why would we not assume he meant it literally? That's a very valid question. But we have to agree that Jesus often assigned things to himself metaphorically. Think of the I am statements in John. He said, I am the gate. He said, I am the candle or the light. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the road. Jesus often used metaphorical language. It's, it's very typical of him. What I think is more difficult for this view of transubstantiation is that nobody knew anything about it until 1215, which gives us 1,200 years of celebrating communion incorrectly. But the most difficult is this. 
Those who hold to transubstantiation re-crucify Christ. It's a re-crucification of Christ. That's why those who hold to transubstantiation don't have an empty cross. They always have a cross with Jesus on it. Always. Because every time you celebrate the crucifixion, every time you celebrate communion, Jesus is physically re-crucified again. Does that square with Scripture? It might be sincere, but does it square with Scripture? Listen to Hebrews 10, 10 to 12. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service. He's talking about in the Old Testament, the Levitical system. You and I would go and sacrifice an animal and then we'd be on our way home and, and the kids would make us mad and we'd lose our cool and, oh man, we have to go back. I just sinned. Or we'd get in an argument and it was our fault. No, oh man, I got to go back and sacrifice again. And so the, the priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We believe in the utter sufficiency of Christ's atonement, that we don't need to add to it, we can't take away from it. He died once and for all. That's why Jesus said to tell us die. It is finished on the cross. He did it all. We cannot add to the sufficiency of his payment. By faith, we believe in Christ. We receive him as Savior. But he has done it all. And sufficiently, he has done it for us. So with the history of the church, when Jesus says, this is my body, we take it to mean this represents my body. And when we drink of the cup and it says, this is my blood, we take it to represent what Jesus did. He shed his blood for us. And when we partake of communion, we do so with joy, but also with a solemnity. I want to close with three very quick comments. One of the things I greatly admire by those who hold transubstantiation, I don't agree with their position, I don't even think it's even close to being biblical, but one of the things that I greatly admire is they have a solemnity. They have an honoring of the Lord's Supper. They have a reverence for the Lord's Supper that I would do well to put into my life. My second comment is this. Whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, I think we need to remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 30. It says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. When you and I partake of the bread and the cup, we always have a time period when we're to examine ourselves. First, we need to make sure that we have truly placed our faith in Christ. Second, all of us need to confess our sins, and if we're, we're not ready to confess our sins, 
we need to pass the elements by without partaking them. Paul says we can eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. Parents, grandparents, I want us to think very carefully about this. A young child, maybe even a four-year-old child, can pray to receive Christ and earnestly and sincerely do so. Can a four-year-old child once a month focus on what Christ has done, spend the time in confession, and be prepared adequately to take communion? I think that is very unlikely. I think that is very unlikely. So someone can accept Christ at a much younger age than they ought to be having communion, which tells us to let a man or let a person examine himself lest one eat or drink judgment upon themselves. So we need to think very carefully about what age we're going to allow, not the church, parents, grandparents, are going to allow children to partake of the elements. First, they need to know Christ, but second, they need to be focused on what's going on and they need to be ready to personally confess their sins. That moment to prepare their heart. And so as parents and grandparents, we need to be parents and grandparents. And sometimes that means saying, no, you need to wait until you're older, until we are sure that you are not going to eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And the final observation is this. Communion is to be practiced often enough that we celebrate the Lord and what he's done, but not so often that it becomes just another filler in the service. I don't know what that means. Churches that do it every week, Praise the Lord. If they're focused on Christ, that's great. That's preference. Praise the Lord. We choose to do it once a month at our baptismal services. We're having three this summer. We had one in the winter, so that would be four more. And we do it on Good Friday, so that sounds like 17 times. Maybe they do it on the third Monday of the month once or twice. I don't know. Uh, so it might be 20 times a year we celebrate. Maybe small groups will do communion together. Uh, maybe Generation 180 will do it. That's fine. We want to do communion often enough that we remember Christ and not so often that it loses the important in our lives. That's a preferential issue. But whenever we celebrate, Let's remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the privilege to talk just briefly about communion. There's so many things that we could say. And certainly, Father, our intent and desire is not to be divisive, not even a little. We just want to understand better what we believe your inspired and errant word says on this issue. And Father, as we partake of communion in a moment, 
If there's some that may not have accepted your son as Savior, may this day be the day by faith that they say, yes, I'm a sinner. And I accept your son Jesus and his death on the cross as a payment of my sin, his resurrection, as evidence of life after the grave. Empower me by your spirit to turn from sin and towards righteousness. And for we who know Christ, because of your graciousness, may we partake of the elements in a manner that is worthy, that is pleasing to you. May we examine ourselves, lest we eat or drink judgment upon ourselves. Thank you for the celebration and the solemnity of the Lord's Supper. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.